You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Erin Barker, and today we're sharing two stories that were recorded before the pandemic, but that we've actually never shared on the podcast before. Both are from Women in Science, as our title today suggests, and each one will bring us into a different career journey with at least one big surprise along the way. Our first story today is from Brenna Souter. It was recorded in early March 2020 in Seattle at one of our last real shows before the pandemic. So in the summer of 1999, I was 18, and I was working at this whale research station in northern Maine. And we're all sitting around the office one day, and um, I was doing data entry, and somebody was looking at whale photographs, and we get a call on the marine radio. And Phil goes over to answer it, and we realize that it's our friend Steve, who's a longtime friend of the project. And um, But Steve lives like 80 miles south of us, so Phil goes, so Steve, what brings you up here? And Steve goes, well, we're out here. Me and Martha Stewart are out here on her boat, and we were thinking we might drop in. <laughs> so in the silence that follows, I'm looking around the room and I'm thinking, okay, data protocol tacked to the wall, assortment of flea market chairs and tables. Uh, the floor is like slanting in one direction to the corner where the foundation might be falling into the ground. There is no place that I can think of that is less likely to be featured in Martha Stewart Living Magazine than this research station. <laughs> so when I say research station, I'm actually talking about two old New England homes that are kind of cobbled together. It's not a fancy lab, it's not an office building. It's definitely none of, the, none of those things. So you walk down the hall from the office where I was sitting and you're in this dining kitchen area which has this really long table and it, we frequently host like 25 visiting scientists but they are usually eating out of like a single pot of spaghetti and none of the chairs around the table match. There is no matching flatware. There's no matching dishware. And the dish towels are definitely not seasonally themed. <laughs> in the other direction, you get to this stairway, which is covered in this awful green shag carpet. And on the wall is this wallpaper, which is like floral and peeling off in places. And that's concerning because it might actually be structurally important to the walls. But my favorite part is this, there's this bathroom 
which is in the, the hallway. And it's a single stall, and it is just like toilet, and three walls and a door. And all over the walls are these inscriptions from the crew over the years. And there's like funny jokes that are inside jokes and little bits of wisdom and all sorts of just like random things that are on the wall kind of memorializing the crew over the years. And um, the door, you can actually see above and below the door out into the hallway. And this is all illuminated by a single light bulb. So all that's to say, definitely not Martha Stewart material. But the other thing about it is that I totally love it. So I spent every summer of my life going there as a child with my sister um, because my dad started the project in 1980. And so it was as much home for me as any other place that I could claim in my life. Um, people from all over the world would come to this research station to study one of the most endangered whales in the world. And as a young kid, it was a great place to just hang out. I could stomp around in my boots and dump my beach treasures on the floor. And nobody cared. Nobody batted an eye. And it became very clear to me, even as a young child, that what was happening there and the people that were there was way more important than what any of this place looked like. So that's all well and good. You know, you can live your values in the middle of nowhere, Maine. And people are really busy doing important things and nobody notices the wallpaper peeling, but suddenly, when someone who's about to walk through the door who has her own line of designer wallpaper, things seem to take on a different light. So, Steve on the radio has now told us that this is not a joke, which is possible, um, but he and Martha Stewart are in fact about to show up. At the time, he was the president of this small college and she was a potential patron, and they're on their way. So what do you do when Martha Stewart is about to walk through the front door? Well, the first thing that happens is that one of the lead scientists leaves. She's like, I want nothing to do with that woman. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that checks with what I'm expecting of this crew. Who else is going with her? <laughs> Um, but remarkably, a lot of us decide to stick around, probably from curiosity. Um, and I'm standing around with people like, I don't know, what do you do? You clean? Do you like uh, whip up some scones and some fresh tea? Uh, like, <laughs> do you change into something more presentable? It's not like anybody has sweater sets or pearls lying around. Um, but then there was this third group of people who were actually trying to make this place look presentable. And they were like rifling through the cabinets looking for mugs that didn't have chips in them or like trying to find two plates that matched. Um, <laughs> and or they were standing in the pantry and they're like, OK, we got Cheez-Its, Oreos, pretzels, sardines. Like, what are we going to feed this woman? Um, and they were being very diligent, not very successful, but very diligent. And I realized that I had never seen this side of the crew growing up among the women of that project, and the project was mostly women, was kind of an incredible and unusual experience as a girl. And they really showed me how to be strong women. None of them cared about appearances. They were totally committed to marine science conservation. Um, and they were basically up for whatever needed to happen. They were frequently in jeans and t-shirts and messy hair. and. You know, they would haul gear up and down um, the docks and they'd be fixing the engine and doing whatever needed to happen. Um, there would be a dead, dead whale that would show up on the beach one day and 
they would be in their hip waders, standing in the guts of this animal, taking samples and making measurements, trying to figure out what had happened. Um, frequently on our surveys, it would be all female crew and there would be a woman on the helm and we'd pull into the dock and women would jump off and secure lines and the fishermen in the parking lot would be standing around scratching their heads like, this is kind of not what we expect. But for me, it was totally normal. In fact, gender seemed to be entirely beside the point. So it was pretty unsettling to see this group of the crew that I thought I had known really trying to shine up this research station. And the feeling that I had rising inside me was actually kind of indignation. Like, why should we have to show up in any way other than how we are for this woman, this stranger who is Martha Stewart? And I think underneath that, upon reflection, maybe not as an 18-year-old, but underneath that was this worry that somehow we weren't going to pass muster um, in the eyes of this woman, mythologized woman. But despite my reservations, Martha Stewart did in fact show up 20 minutes later. And she walks in the door and Steve kind of does this introduction and she looks exactly how I imagined her to look. She's wearing like this sharp casual outfit that could be straight off the pages of L.L. Bean. And except she's wearing these like sparkly earrings, which I assume were diamonds. And her hair is like perfectly coiffed. Like it definitely doesn't look like she was just on a boat. Um, except she's wearing Crocs. So. <laughs> so, but you know, in her defense, she was totally engaged and she was really quite curious about what we were doing there and she, we took her on a, a tour of the research station and she asked some good questions. She did not bat an eye about the wallpaper. The tour did not heavily feature the green shag carpet. Um, and she did politely decline tea from our best non-chipped mug. But um, in, the, in the end, it was quite a lovely visit and she was gracious and polite and um, after a short visit, we said our goodbyes, and she went back south on her boat, and we went back to our version of normal. At 18, I had thought that being a badass, tough woman would somehow protect me from feeling insecure as a woman. And Martha Stewart, who kind of embodied the societal expectation of how to show up as a woman and be feminine um, was something that just totally flipped that on its head. I had expected to have to show up and be tough and show that I wasn't dainty or squeamish or, or somehow like too girly. Um, but I hadn't expected this other thing which happened, which was instead of worrying that I was going to be perceived as too feminine, I was worried that I wasn't gonna be perceived as feminine enough. And it was just this bizarre thing that happened where it was one extreme of these badass women who were totally engaged in science and I thought were kind of infallible. And Martha Stewart, who was this totally like mythologized version of domestic goddess. And they just like got thrust together in this strange environment. And I was left wondering 
Was it possible to show up and be comfortable as a badass woman of science in a world that elevated Martha Stewart? So fast forward 20 years, and I don't think I've got that figured out. Um, <laughs> but maybe I have a little bit more insight. Um, I, I do think that I'm glad that I got to meet Martha Stewart, the person, instead of that myth living in my mind. Um, I had the chance to visit the research station this past summer, and I was really glad to see that not much has changed. The green shag carpet is still there. Um, the office is still slightly more sagging into that corner. Um, and I, I got to visit the bathroom and see what had been added to the walls over the years, which was kind of fun. And I'm perusing and reading the inscriptions and chuckling to myself when I come across this inscription, which I had forgotten about. And it says, Martha Stewart peed here. <laughs> and it immediately brought me back to this moment of like Martha Stewart standing in that kitchen in her diamond earrings and her Crocs. <laughs> and also reminded me of those women who were badass in, in marine con conservation science and like they were also sorting through plates, trying to find plates that matched. And it was a moment that I was just reminded of the fact that these mythologies that we create for how women are supposed to show up, or really anybody, but in this case, how we're supposed to show up in the world don't really serve us and aren't really an accurate representation of any one of us. Um, I, over my life, have been both a badass woman of science and a mother. Um, and I like to bake cookies, but you know, I'll wear my jeans and t-shirt. And I much prefer digging for clams than dusting my house. But we are all that complicated. And it was a good reminder standing in the bathroom that day that we, in the end, are all just human and even Martha Stewart. <laughs> Thank you. That was Brenna Souter. Brenna is a writer and nonprofit communications professional. She has spent much of her life on boats looking for whales, first as the daughter of a marine biologist and later as a research assistant in the Bay of Fundy, and now with her family in the Salish Sea. In addition to telling mission-driven stories for nonprofits, she has worked as an environmental educator and freelance journalist. These days, she divides her time between writing and raising two small humans. By the way, before we continue, if you're interested in diving deep into the topic of women in science, I highly recommend checking out 500womenscientists.org. It's a great resource on this topic. And one more thing before we continue, StoryQuiter would like to hear from you. How do you feel about returning to in-person live shows? Would you like us to keep producing any of our online programs, whether they're shows, workshops, or slams? If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate your feedback on our survey. We'll be sharing it in the notes of this episode, as well as on our website and social media. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Our next story today is from Catalina Martinez. It was recorded at our show at the Inclusive SciComm Conference in 2019. So about five years ago, while I was presenting during a Women's History Month celebration at the Rhode Island Job Corps program, I met the most amazing young woman. She had been homeless since she was 18 years old because both of her, by, both of her adoptive parents had passed away. I met her a few years into her homelessness when she was really struggling to find a reason to really you know, keep going, you know? And she came up to me after my presentation and she told me how much my story really resonated deeply with her. And I was so thankful to have met her. And before we parted, she turned to me and she said, Catalina, it's not what's on you, it's what's in you. And this powerful, brave young woman, so resilient because of what she had been through, she was wise beyond her years. And I understood that. Coming from a very traditional Cuban family who had very little money, I grew up living with my Cuban grandparents, and some of you may recognize that in your own stories. I was kept home a lot as a kid to help take care of my sick grandmother and to take care of the family in a lot of other ways. My grandparents didn't believe that girls needed an education. They believed that only boys should go to school. Thankfully, I lived in a really diverse community because then I could see that there was more out there in the world for girls than what I could see within my own family. And there was this large African-American community around me, and they supported their kids to go to school, including the girls. And there was this really amazing family of all girls, and they were the smartest kids in school. And I used to fantasize that I was one of those smart sisters, and my name was Karen instead of Catalina. And I would stand next to those girls in school every chance I got, hoping some of their specialness might rub off on me. And I remember for years, I would dream as Karen, and I could fly high above our treetops in our neighborhood, high above the school, and I would look down on that schoolyard and see those swing sets. And I would do this only at night when nobody could see me. And when I look back at that dream flying, I think it was my first secret superpower where I could take control of my life in some way? Yeah. And my family was in the racetrack business, 
and I mean horses. And I don't mean that fancy, schmancy, cocktail-sipping, hat-wearing, Kentucky Derby glamorous shit. Uh-uh. I'm talking the ghetto, down-and-out shit where child labor laws did not exist. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of too small to be that much use on the racetrack, although I worked there a lot. So I was kept home a lot to do other kinds of jobs for the family, and I spent so much time in the local laundromat that my, my friends would come visit me there. Uh huh. And I would have to wash all the family's dirty, smelly laundry and the horseshit-covered blankets and those wraps on those horses' legs. And it was so heavy, there was no way I could carry it myself. So I had to jam it down into these old feed bags and shove it into this wheelie cart made of metal and I would over to the laundromat. And those poor laundromat folk, they hated to see me coming because I would stink up that joint. I would clog up their shit with all the horse manure and all the hay and all the horrors that would come out of those bags. And I would flood those floors and my, and you know, we could afford to wash but not wash and dry all those clothes. So my grandmother taught me this trick. Yeah. So I had this dime and it was taped to this string that was just long enough. And you'd stick it in that coin slot and click, click some time on those dryers and you'd retrieve it and use it later. And the reason I got away with it is because my grandmother would tell me, Gothi, you have to hide your hand with a girdle. Yes, a smelly big ass girdle. I would hide my hand because people would be too ashamed to look. She was right. So I spent a lot of years and I feel really bad to this day. Laundromat people are wonderful people. I am so sorry. I would flood their floors and I would rob them at the same time. <laughs> while I was stinking up the joint. And there is a really special smell that comes with the racetrack. I mean, it clung to us. We stunk like this, you know, mix of horse sweat and horse manure and the sweetness of the hay and the feed mixed in with the leather of the saddles and the shanks and these weird chemicals like sulfidine and this other stuff they would rub on the horse's legs. And that smell sometimes still comes to me kind of as a memory, and it pulls me right back to that place. And we had this Cuban community around us in my neighborhood all around the racetracks. And again, I'm talking horses, right? And we all had this smell associated with us. So the others in the neighborhood would call us dirty spicks. And you'd be amazed at what you can get used to, that stink and those assholes. And as you can imagine, school became more and more problematic the more time I missed, right? And I wanted to get out of my house. So by the time I was 16, I had my own apartment, I was completely self-supporting, and I had dropped out of high school, not surprisingly. I had to work a lot of minimum wage jobs, several at a time, to support myself. And when I look back on those jobs, sometimes I laugh and sometimes I cringe. At first, I worked in a factory during the day, and I was a telemarketer at night for the phone company right alongside my mother in both of those jobs, but she is a story collider unto herself, so I will not go there. <laughs> and those of you who knew my mother, you know what I'm talking about. Now, I also worked in a lighting showroom, and I was trained to sell cars. It's not the deal they get, it's the deal they think they get, right? 
Yeah. And for a while, I was a waitress, and I was a terrible waitress. I would wear the food a lot more than I would serve it. And let me just tell you, where in Rhode Island, wearing creamy clam chowder down the front of your shirt is not a good look. <laughs> and eventually, I was hired in this really crappy toy store in the mall, and this woman walked across the hallway by day two, and she handed me a job application from another store, and she said, you need to be working with us over there. And that started my three-year stint working for Fredericks of Hollywood. <laughs> now, I always knew somehow that I had to keep educating myself and building skills so that I could get better jobs and increase my earning potential, right? I didn't know that language at the time, but I had to get myself out of poverty. So while I was working at Fredericks at night, at one point I was studying during the day to become a medical assistant. And because of those skills, I got a job as a phlebotomist, you know, the person who draws your blood when you go into a lab. Well, because I did that during the day and I worked at Fredericks at night, my brother told me, you're a vampire by day and a vamp by night. <laughs> and at some point I was hired after I did that training in the most amazing job to help start an alternative middle school for potential dropout kids in Providence, Rhode Island, where I grew up and dropped out. I was the perfect person for that job. I had the right lived experiences. I had the right perspective. And those remain five of the most important years of my life, working for the Urban Collaborative Accelerated Program and helping to start that amazing school that still stands today. I got to work alongside the most dedicated teachers and staff who were supporting these resilient, powerful students who worked so hard to come to school every day despite what they went through at home. And I worked hard too during that time. And I kept chipping away at my education one course a semester while I saved up money until I could enter a university as a matriculated student. And at 28 years old, I entered the University of Rhode Island right here on this campus. And as hard as it was coming into a university for the first time in my life with very little academic preparation, nothing was harder than walking into a white majority environment for the first time in my life. It was at this university, in the first year that I was at this university, where being called a spick meant something for the first time in my life, and it was from a professor. He didn't even call me a dirty spick but it had so much more meaning. And I didn't realize it at that time, but that undercurrent and sometimes blatant hostility toward me and other people like me was, would carry on through my entire academic experience. And when I was accepted into graduate school in oceanography, a different professor told me I was hiding behind my minority status by accepting a minority fellowship. He said the only reason a professor took me on at all was because this professor could check off two boxes, a female and a minority, right? Double jeopardy. And that double jeopardy followed me into graduate school because several graduate students as well as other professors would remind me periodically that I was not there on merit. I was there because I was a female and a minority. And even when I would win the award for best presentation at a conference or the best student paper or poster, I was reminded that those accolades only came my way because I was a female and a minority. And I guess I was really good at supporting myself in graduate school because at one point, I received research funding on a grant to do my work. And that funding was given to another student, a majority student, because 
Catalina, you can always apply for minority funding. You're really good at supporting yourself. I guess struggling to survive was some kind of mediocre superpower I hadn't figured out yet. So I continued to study until I was satisfied. And I now have three graduate degrees from this university. And I don't know where my resolve came from, ever. I only know that I have always been determined to get the education of my choosing and not let my circumstances or my family or the perception of others dictate that for me. Overcoming significant adversity to find success left me with a lot of gaps that I still struggle with today. But it also allows for a really special perspective. And yes, I do now see that as a badass superpower. Those of us who experience it early in life tend to hone particular skills that allow us to add value in certain professional and personal spaces and places. First of all, we tend to view obstacles as detours instead of outright barriers. We are fearless when navigating challenges, and we are courageous problem solvers through seriously unconventional ideas. Basically, we know how to get shit done, we don't expect it to be easy, and we know beyond a doubt that that road to success will be paved with potholes. We also understand the importance of building family out of community and surrounding ourselves with amazing people while always championing others. Lift as you climb and collect your peeps, right? We are also warriors, and we are determined to kick down doors for others despite the consequences. And I personally have a scorched earth policy when it comes to taking care of my collection of peeps. And I got some in this room. Mm-hmm. So if you're a scrapper like me, and you've had to fight to get to where you want to be in life, and then had to keep fighting to prove that you have a right to be there, Never, never, ever limit your vision of who you can become or where you belong based on the perception of others. Dive into those badass superpowers and never forget it is not what's on you, it's what's in you. Thank you. That was Catalina Martinez. Catalina is Regional Program Manager for NOAA's Office of Ocean Exploration and Research at the University of Rhode Island. She spent many years sailing on research vessels as Expedition Coordinator for OER, managing partnerships at the University of Rhode Island, and working as Regional Liaison for the program. She also consistently seeks to increase representation of U.S. minorities and women in STEM, and hopes to increase potential for life success for individuals born to challenging circumstances. In recognition of this work, she was honored by the YWCA as one of their 2015 Women of Achievement in Rhode Island for promoting peace, justice, freedom, and dignity. She also received the 2016 NOAA Oceanic and Atmospheric Research EEO Diversity Award for exemplary service, as well as the Women of Color and STEM Diversity Leadership and Government Award. The Storyclighter is so grateful to Brenna and Catalina for sharing their stories with us. The Storyclighter is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, with assistance from Storyclighter's Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg and Senior Podcast Editor Jun Chen. 
Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board, our interim executive director, Leslie Griesbach-Schultz, our operations manager, Lindsay Cooper, and our new marketing manager, Nikisha Roberts-Washington, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Emmy Okikawa, Mulia Pegarigan, Liz Neely, and Gastor Almonte. Our theme music is by Ghost. We'll be back in July with a very special series of stories called Human Nature about our relationship with the natural world, including stories about climate change, ecology, environmental justice, adventures in the field, and more. Until then, thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.